0: Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson. I'm Avery Ware. This is Part 1, Introduction to U.S. Labor History. Labor historian Art Price called it the Gettysburg of American labor. In 1937, workers at the Flint, Michigan, General Motors Complex occupied their plant demanding union recognition. Rank-and-file auto worker and Socialist Party member Kermit Johnson came up with the plan to decoy the police. They sent out word that they would occupy Fisher Body 9. Then, instead, they went into Fisher Body 4. His wife, Janora Dollinger, was a revolutionary socialist who organized the workers' wives into the armed Women's Emergency Brigade, which kept the occupation going by smashing plant windows to let out tear gas launched inside by police. Meanwhile, the occupation, or sit-down tactic, was opposed by Congress of Industrial Organizations head John L. Lewis. But it was the sit-down that forced GM, the largest corporation in the world, to do what it and the other U.S. industrial giants had refused to do since they were targeted by unions going back to the 1880s. Recognize the union. Soon after that breakthrough, Lewis called the number 2 manufacturing behemoth U.S. Steel. They agreed to union recognition as well, fearing that the sit-down wave would come their way. By the end of spring, there were 424 sit-down strikes across the country. Union membership went through the roof, and the basis for 35 years of rising wages, health plans, pensions, and vacations was laid. Before getting into the history of the labor movement before and after 1937, we should ask, why did we have to fight that hard to get what we got back then? In a U.S. economy that has doubled about every twenty-five years, why was it only after civil war-like battles that we got some decent conditions for workers, and then only for thirty-five years? In short, Why do we need unions? Three hundred years ago, in this country and around the world, the overwhelming majority of humanity ate, not by selling our labor to a company, but by growing our own food. As trade grew, banks and big farms ruined small farmers. We lost our land and our tools. With no productive property of our own, we were forced to move to cities where we could sell our labor to survive. We kept coming, and have kept coming to this day, from farm villages to industrial cities. Like my great-grandparents, from rural Italy to Pennsylvania mining towns, other people from Oklahoma to California in the Great Depression, from southern Mexico to the U.S., and from rural China to Hong Kong. For the first time in world history, by the year 2000, of humanity lived in cities. As workers we all have to sell our labor to eat or not become homeless and together we make up the global labor market. In the US, the Bureau of Labor Statistics counts 82% of the economically active population as non-supervisory employees. That means people who can be hired and fired but who can't hire and fire others. Meanwhile, unequal economic growth keeps piling up bigger and bigger mounds of cash in fewer and fewer, larger and larger companies. Those companies are all forced to keep their costs down because they compete with each other to offer the lowest price on their products. Now, when we put our labor on the market, we go out and apply for that job or go to that job interview, everything is on the line for us. We're just one person the company has other employees they need employees but they don't necessarily need us we on the other hand desperately need someone to hire us so the employer can force the wage offer as low as they want and we gratefully accept it. In the public sector our employers are not forced by competition to sell products as cheaply as possible so it's different in that way but public sector workers wages are still strongly determined by the broader conditions of the private labor market. In other words, market competition forces wages down, and as individual workers in the labor market we're largely powerless to stop it. But there's more as to why we need unions. The same competition, the permanent industrial war between companies, means the capitalist economy is unplanned chaos in fact it thrives on chaos and it can grow like gangbusters that way but chaos is always unbalanced and it can never lead to steady uninterrupted growth companies instead are pushed by competition to go too far to produce too much stuff in the scramble to take their competitors market share then collectively they can't sell the stuff they've already paid to produce they can't pay the loans back to the banks. They have to lay us off. Then we can't pay our mortgages and housing prices crash and the whole downward spiral of economic crisis takes hold. We've gone through economic downturns like these on average every 10 years since the mid-1800s. So if our wages had been rising, that can all be set back every 10 years or so. Millions of us lose our jobs and we might have to start over in some other job paying less. And even that's not all. That same competition forces companies to push down prices not just by fighting our unions and holding down our wages, but by buying new and better machines, computers, and robots. Under the universal system of competition, better machines don't mean we get to work less hours. Instead, a bunch of us get laid off, and those who don't get laid off have to work harder to keep up with a faster pace. New industries undercut older ones. Rising economic powers undersell the cost of labor. Restructuring is the word for all of it. And restructuring is constantly happening in capitalism, good times and bad. But the restructuring is organized by the employers to maximize profit so it becomes yet another force tearing down our wages and disorganizing our ability to resist. Finally, because wealth is power, and I would argue that wealth will always be power, the corporate capitalists exercise a decisive influence on government, overcoming the democratic interests of the majority. And so the laws, regulatory agencies, enforcement, and foreign policy ultimately serve them and their never-ending need to minimize labor costs in their competitive struggle against each other. With all of this, it should be clear that the task of ensuring that the ever-growing wealth of our world makes it into the hands of those of us producing it is a daunting task. Unions are the most essential and most obvious way of getting into that fight even if unions by themselves are not enough. There's some numbers that show the importance of unions in this regard. In the U.S., the median weekly earnings of union workers are 28% above non-union workers in the same jobs. 92% of union workers have health insurance, compared to 68% of non-union. 46% get fully paid six leave, only 23% for non-unions. We're 59% more likely to have employer-provided pensions. We get 28% more days off. If you look around the world, the four countries of Scandinavia, each of which provide free health care and free college education to all of their citizens, they're also the top 1, 2, 3, 4 unionized countries. In Sweden, it's 82% union. Finland is 76%, so is Denmark, Norway 57%. In the U.S., the unionization rate is 10.7%, near the lowest of the rich countries. So, the U.S. is the richest country in the world, but it ranks number 27 in life expectancy almost all of those with higher life expectancy have higher unionization rates. So let's move on now to an overview of the history of the US labor movement. Between 1790 and 1860 the US population went from, uh, the US urban population went from 5 percent to 20 percent. The first unions formed in the 1790s. Before 1860, most employees worked in small shops with no more than maybe a dozen people. The first unions were craft unions, shoemakers, rope makers, mechanics, workers who knew how to make a whole thing by themselves, not like someone on an assembly line who only makes a part of it. Assembly lines didn't exist yet. If these highly skilled craft workers struck, you couldn't just train someone else to scab, because it would take years to train them. So craft unions tried to keep the numbers of other workers in their field low. The darkest aspect of this was that very often this meant white male workers keeping black and all other workers out of their union and out of their entire trade. But the unions were there. The first strike wave in the U.S. happened in the 1830s and unions started to spread enough during that time so that the first citywide union coalitions, or labor councils, were formed. During the Civil War, the army invented the assembly line to make uniforms for soldiers. Contrary to the pro-capitalist myth, Henry Ford didn't invent the assembly line. After the war, the economy boomed, the first big factories began to be built, and the first modern corporations formed. By 1900, the urban population grew to 40%. Historian W.E.B. Du Bois considers the Civil War to have been won in part through what he calls the quote, General Strike, which was when some 10% of slaves, carefully watching political developments and discussing it among themselves, escaped and thus withdrew their labor from the Confederate economy and severely disrupting the war effort. It was a labor action, and it should be remembered with pride as part of the labor movement. After victory in the war and emancipation, the first National Union Federations were set up, the colored National Labor Union and just the National Labor Union. But neither one of these national bodies survived the political backslide to white supremacy that defeated Reconstruction. The rise of big factories with hundreds or thousands of workers doing simpler, unskilled or semi-skilled tasks, and the grouping of black, immigrant, Mexican, and white workers together, and women and girls in industries like textiles meant the craft unions were a minority inside these factories and could no longer shut down production on their own. So in the 1880s, the Knights of Labor formed and organized all workers in each factory together, and this was called industrial as opposed to craft unionism. The Knights included black, immigrant, and native-born workers together. They rapidly rose to 700,000 members by 1886 the same year that German immigrant Unionists in Chicago called for a nationwide 8-hour day strike on May 1st, which later became International Workers Day to commemorate them. It was the first planned national strike and it won the 8-hour day for many workers. But the Chicago leaders led by anarchist Albert Parsons and Marxist August Spies were framed and executed and their union, as well as the Knights, declined as fast as they rose. The American Federation of Labor, or AFL, formed in the same period, grouping together mostly craft unions. Led by Samuel Gompers, the AFL, up until the early nineties, punished any member union that practiced racial discrimination, with the important exception that they opposed Chinese immigration and Chinese workers. But the Depression of 1893 caused massive unemployment and destroyed or weakened the unions of the AFL. The AFL took a survival strategy among different options that was very conservative. Involved in this was that Gompers increasingly tolerated Jim Crow discrimination in AFL unions, which he had previously opposed and these unions became dominated by highly paid non-worker types who were bureaucrats rubbing shoulders with employers and politicians. They cozied up to the power structure. These unions, these leaders, opposed strikes, member involvement, and union democracy. Yet, the size of the working class was still growing. By 1920, 51% of people lived in the cities. In the first two decades of the century, the labor movement was a battleground pitting anti-racist, pro-strike, industrial unionists against the Gompers types. In 1905, the Western Federation of Miners, Albert Parsons' widow, Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, and socialist presidential candidate and former railroad union leader, Eugene Debs, launched the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, as a rival to the AFL. Though comparatively small, with a peak of 150,000 members, the IWW led giant labor battles like the 1912 Lawrence, Massachusetts, textile strike. In that strike, there were thousands of mostly immigrant women who gained national sympathy and they beat the company with daily mass picketing. They had mass democratic strike meetings, and they had a strike committee which involved translation services for dozens of different language group members. At the time, the AFL disdained workers who didn't speak English. The IWW didn't just let them join, it embraced them. The Women's Trade Union League, a solidarity group which was also central to the fight for women's suffrage, raised funds for the strikers. Yet the successful strike did not leave behind a functioning union. In the 1910s, there was a big rise in strikes, including a growing number of wildcats. A wildcat is a strike by the members of a union against the orders of the leaders. And more than half of all strikes in 1920 were wildcats. In the minor strikes in Ludlow, Colorado in 1913, and Mingo County, West Virginia in 1920, armed union members defending themselves from police, company guard and federal forces ended up militarily taking over territory for days or weeks at a time. In 1919 the Seattle Central Labor Council called out 60,000 workers in a citywide general strike, driving out the police and replacing them with their own security force which was made up of recently returned World War I veterans who did their patrols without carrying arms? Seattle Mayor Ole Hansen had to ask the strike committee before he made any decisions. All these giant battles ended in defeat, but they showed that the labor movement had grown the potential to overcome state power when organized on lines of industrial, racial, and gender inclusion. After a disastrous 1920s, in which the AFL went from 5 to 2 million members, the labor movement reached peak power from the 30s to the 70s, forcing a basic change in economics and economic policy on a reluctant capitalist class. Strikes began to take off in 1933. But at first, most of them lost. Then in 1934, there were three high-profile strikes, all led by rank and file revolutionaries of different organizations they each started in one industry and ended up as citywide general strikes in each case the picket lines were assaulted by police but the strikers fought back and held the line these were the san francisco longshoremen's minneapolis truckers and toledo auto worker strikes the new deal reforms of 1935 social security unemployment insurance, aid to families with dependent children, and the National Labor Relations or Wagner Act granting the right to unionize. Those laws only came after these three general strikes showed the determination and collective ability to figure out how to win of Depression-era workers. And these strikes also forced a split in the AFL with United Mine Workers President John L. Lewis forming the CIO or Committee on Industrial Organization, the still craft unionist AFL expelled the CIO for the heresy of industrial unionism, which was being organized with or without them. But the CIO, despite their expulsion, set themselves up as a rival union federation, and working alongside radicals and embracing black, Mexican, immigrant, and women workers, they led the organization of the heart of corporate USA the United Auto Workers at GM, the Steel Workers at U.S. Steel, and the Electrical Workers at GE. Between 1934 and 38, union membership went from 3.6 to 8 million. Another strike wave brought it up to 13.5 million in 1943, with forward momentum continuing until the unions reached their peak percentage of the workforce at 35%, in 1954 with 15 million members. But the Cold War gave the employers an excuse for a political counterattack. though it would still be another generation before they were confident enough to start reversing and attacking our economic gains. McCarthyism was an attack on labor radicals, causing thousands of rank-and-file militant union leaders to be fired and blacklisted. In 1948, the CIO itself expelled 11 national unions because of their Communist Party leadership, including the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, ILWU, formed out of the San Francisco general strike, and also the United Electrical Workers, which was the third biggest in the CIO. Truman's Taft-Hartley Law, which it's true Truman vetoed. It's also true that he then used the Taft-Hartley law twelve times to bring injunctions against strikes. That law made it illegal for communists to hold union office. Except for the expelled unions, which continued to practice an impressive anti-racism and social justice unionism, the AFL-NCIO, which remerged in 1955, backslid toward racist Jim Crow policies during this period. In the 1960s, the black freedom struggle intertwined with and revitalized the labor movement. Unions gradually declined as a percentage of the workforce as they have done until today, but not in the public sector. In 1940, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME, had only 30,000 members. In 1964, the new president, Jerry Werff, launched a campaign for, quote, parity with private sector workers. Interesting quote. Notice that back then, when unions were strong in the private but weak in the public sector, it was public sector workers that wanted to make what private sector workers made, not the reverse. Jerry Werff's strategy was to recruit black and women workers by allying with the civil rights movement. Worf was in Memphis organizing sanitation workers alongside Dr. King when King was assassinated in 1968. AFSME went from 200,000 members in his first year to one million when he stepped down in 1978. The American Federation of Teachers, AFT, founded by Margaret Haley in 1916, had over a thousand strikes between 1960 and 1974 that involved 823,000 teachers, and they went from 59,000 members in 1960 to 550,000 in 1980. The black freedom, women's, anti-war, brown power, and red power movements spilled over into and gave confidence to a 1970s strike wave beyond the public sector that encountered resistance from the bureaucratic union leadership. Rank-and-file opposition caucuses like the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, Miners for Democracy, and Teamsters for a Democratic Union were formed by the mid-70s, often coming out of, or leading, new waves of wildcat strikes, and often with the leadership of new-left revolutionaries. The 70s strike wave ended with a crash, with President Reagan's firing of the striking air traffic controllers in 1981. A national politics of tough-on-crime, which translated into a racialized mass incarceration, helped ease through what have now been decades of deunionization, budget cuts, stagnant wages, rising health premiums, 401K retirements, flexible work scheduling, work intensification, and more. The private sector, once the bastion of unionism, is down to 7% union. The public sector remains fairly highly unionized at 30%, but the Supreme Court's Janus ruling aims to wreck this last stronghold of decent jobs that were fairly common 50 years ago. Occupy Wall Street in 2011 showed mass anger at this new status quo. The fight for 15 of unionizing fast food workers, beginning in 2012, was inspired by Occupy and soon started to win victories in local and state minimum wage increases. The 2012 Chicago teacher strike saw two-thirds of Chicagoans back a victorious struggle against Democratic Mayor Rahm Emanuel for smaller class sizes. And it formed an alliance between teachers and mostly black and Latino parents' organizations. In 2018, statewide semi-wildcat strikes spread from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Kentucky to Arizona, where a 20% raise was won. For the first time since the 70s, we have a strike wave in the U.S., though still small by historical standards. More people struck in 2018 than in any year since 1986. And history will show whether today's labor movement can rise to the challenges that threaten our existence as a movement.